Hello, and welcome back to the Joint Venture Podcast, Inspiratio Insights, bringing you the latest and greatest of Inspiratio's coverage every week. My name is Oliver Carr, and I am once again joined by our senior reporter, Zachary Skidmore. Hi, Zach. Hello. Zach will be taking us through a jam-packed week of news, both good and bad, all about the offshore wind sector. Also, on this episode, we are happy to welcome a new contributor, Dila Jabidji. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. Dila is our senior infrastructure analyst and an expert in all things infra, also a specialist in political science. Dila is going to be talking us through her research this week on why Germany's digital infrastructure is lagging behind. Yes, that's correct. I'm looking forward to providing some insights. Well, that's to come up later. But as always, we begin with the news. So, Zach, what's been going on this week? So, um, the offshore wind sector has seen several high-profile deals over the past week, with the announcements centred primarily in the European market. So the first notable deal signed last week was the announcement made by Equinor and SSE Renewables. It was surrounding plans to carry out preliminary development work on a potential extension to the Mammoth Dogger Bank offshore wind project in the North Sea. If completed, it will be the fourth phase of construction for the 3.6 gigawatt wind farm and it would add a further 1.32 gigawatts of capacity to the scheme. Phases A, B and C of the offshore wind farm are already in construction, with the project expected to be connected to the grid gradually over the next few years. The Dogger Bank project has been so central to the UK's decarbonisation plans. How is this going to impact the wider energy sector? So the development could have several implications for the UK's renewable energy industry. Firstly, it would represent a key energy source for the UK's national grid. It could generate up to 5% of the UK's electricity by 2026. And it could also provide hydrogen producers in the country a reliable source of green energy to power their electrolyzer systems. It would hasten the transition to green hydrogen in the country. Additionally, due to the installation's sheer size, it's going to offer developers a test case on the efficacy of construction methods for future mega projects. For example... During the construction of the project, the world's largest jack-up installation vessel will be deployed, which has a lifting capacity of 3,000 tonnes. This is indicative of the UK's centrality in the continued development of the offshore wind sector, and it's going to provide a a really, really good test case for other countries looking to expand. The second announcement of note was a decision made by Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners to invest billions in the fledgling Portuguese offshore wind sector. CIP is set to invest as much as 8 billion euros in a 2 gigawatt offshore wind project, which will be located off the coast of Figueiredo da Foz on the Portuguese central Atlantic coast. When the project is constructed, it will amount to 20% of Portugal's 2030 10 gigawatt offshore capacity aim. The process of bringing the offshore scheme to successful completion will be managed by Copenhagen Offshore Partners, which has recently opened an office in Portugal's second city, Porto. Well, we've certainly seen a lot of activity from CIP over the last few weeks. Uh, Why are they so interested in the Portuguese market? So the Portuguese market has significant amounts of offshore wind potential. Um, According to GWEC, it has a total of 131 gigawatts of generation capacity, 14 gigawatts, which is fixed, and 117 gigawatts, which is floating. 
And 2023 is set to be a really big year for Portugal in the sector. The country is preparing to launch its first offshore wind power auction, which is drawing real interest from large utility companies, especially those in Northern Europe. And this interest has actually led the government to decide to speed up the process, with the auction likely to be launched in the third quarter of this year. Companies such as Baywa have already published plans to develop floating wind off the coast of the country. And in October, the German developer actually announced it wants to install the first subsidy-free commercial floating offshore wind project off the Portuguese coast, with 30 turbines and up to 600 megawatts of capacity. It's great to see some of these floating projects really start to come to the fore and to see some government plans being accelerated for a change. Definitely. Well, uh, it's a different story in the UK, as we've reported on widely, but there's been more delays this week. Zach, what are they? Yeah, news from the sector was not all sunshine and rainbows, unfortunately. It was also permeated by several high profile delays and withdrawals. The first notable example came from the Hornsea 4 offshore wind farm with the UK planning inspectorate signalling that there was going to be a five-month delay before the government takes a final decision on granting approval for the project. This is the first decision of note made by the new Secretary of State for the Department of Energy Security and Net Zero, Grant Shapps, a new department which was created in um, Rishi Sunak's cabinet reshuffle early in the week and we actually covered last week, if I remember correctly. We did indeed and we said, I think... We were hoping that this reshuffle would cause some projects to accelerate, but in the short term... Yeah, unfortunately, it's prompted quite a lot of dismay <laughs> within the, um, the wind sector. Um, the developers of Hornsea have stated that they plan to make a final investment decision on February the 22nd, which is only a week away, and the delay will likely impact the decision, pushing back a key project in the UK's race to decarbonise. Um, actually, an industry representative from Renewable UK articulated a wider sense of disappointment felt after the decision was announced. Quote, At a time where countries like the US and the EU are doubling down on attracting clean energy investment through financial incentives and stable policy framework, the UK can't afford to create unnecessary hurdles for investors and developers. So demonstrating that the developers and the investors are really not taking the news very well. No, it's true. In a time when the UK is seems to be stuttering on renewable policy, the EU is uh, going forward with new plans to tackle the IRA in the US. And I think, uh, Dila, your research was on this uh, in the last week. Yes, it was, actually. Uh, I had a, a quick analysis, a look into how the EV battery situation is looking in the European Union. And while I was looking a bit more optimistic, actually, um, the IRA kind of took the wind out of their sails a little bit, so to speak. It's expected it might draw away some of the investments that had been planned for Europe um, more towards the North American continent due to some of the uh, tax credits they're planning to offer them. I think Northwald actually said that they're planning to build it in the US now instead of the Europe because of the subsidies which amount to six to eight hundred million dollars instead of what 155 million that would have been offered in Germany. So um, the hope is that the European Union might eventually introduce something of similar force to the IRA that could maybe attract similar investments in the future. They've certainly been signaling that but uh, let's see if those plans 
materialise anytime soon. Uh, I don't think we're done with bad news though yet, Zach, are we? Yeah, the second setback in the industry was um, felt when Japanese developer Hiera announced that it was set to sell its stake in the proposed Formosa Free Offshore Wind Project, which is being planned for construction off Taiwan, so in the Taiwanese Straits. Um, it was actually being developed by Hira alongside Macquarie-based specialist offshore wind farm business Corio Generation and comprises three sites for potential capacity of two gigawatts in total. So the decision was made due to ongoing concerns in the geopolitical situation in the Straits of Taiwan, where the project is planned to be constructed. Um, so according to the Taiwanese government, actually, a European investor is waiting in the wings. So keep your eye out for that and see if the, the sale goes through in the next couple months. So geopolitics is getting in the way of this particular project. Mm-hmm. What other factors are shaping the fortunes of Taiwanese offshore wind? So generally, Taiwan is one of the most promising emerging markets for offshore wind. It has set a target for wind power capacity of 40 gigawatts by 2050, with half of that amount on track to be built out by 2035. However, the development of offshore wind in Taiwan has offered significant challenges to investors. The concept of offshore energy production is actually completely novel in Taiwan. There's no existing offshore oil and gas infrastructure, and all its ports are generally unsuitable for offshore wind turbine assembly and installation. Additionally, the Taiwanese Straits is susceptible to a range of natural challenges. Firstly, tropical cyclones. Taiwan actually sits on one of the most intensive typhoon areas in the Pacific and usually experiences three to four typhoons a year. Soil liquefaction, which is a high concern as a major hazard for offshore wind turbines. And eastern Taiwan Strait is particularly susceptible and earthquakes are of concern too. Lastly, the unstable political situation between Taiwan and mainland China could significantly impact the ability of developers to build and maintain the farms itself. So it's something to really to keep an eye on looking to the future. That's a big concern, especially if these wind farms, if they are built, become a playing piece in a global geopolitical game of chess. Oh, definitely. Well, thank you very much, Zach. It's my pleasure. And now it's time to turn to the German digital infrastructure sector. Things haven't been going quite as well as perhaps the German people might want, and Dealer has been looking into the whole situation for us this week. Dila, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Oliver. So give us an overview. What's been going on? Why is Germany not the success case that we might hope for digital infrastructure? Yes, I think this might come actually as a bit of a surprise to some people because I think Germany's general global position would suggest it must be leading in digitalization, surely, um, as the fourth biggest economy in the world. But somehow when it comes to digital infrastructure, Germany is lagging behind. And if you haven't had to deal with German bureaucracy before, this might surprise you. So according to actually the European Commission's own report, it's called the DESI report, which is an annual report, the Digital Economy and Society Index. um, And it's meant to monitor the member states' um, digital progress while also identifying areas for uh, priority action. So in last year's report, Germany came in 13th, which is pretty average. But much lower than you'd expect for Europe's largest economy. Um, Can you give us a bit more information on how exactly those rankings work? So what kind of things are they looking for in those reports? Yes. So the, the overall score comes together out of four categories, which are human capital, connectivity, integration of digital technology and digital public services. Out of these, Germany is ranking as a total 
score 13th. For human capital, it sits as the 16th. Connectivity is actually one. It's where you'd expect it to be, actually. It's in the top five. It's fourth, um, which I'll get back into in a bit after we've talked about some of the other parts here. Um, the other two, integration of digital technology, again, 16th, and then digital public services, 18th. So Oof. towards the bottom half, for sure, in that category. So I have to ask, are things really that bad? Yeah, I mean, surprisingly, it really is. Um, just as a reference, so in 2017, Germany um, adopted the Germany's Online Access Act, um, which required all German federal and state government to provide their services for individual and companies online. Um, and this was meant to be done by the end of 2022. So by the, in May last year, um, out of 575 public services, guess how many were realized? Have a quick guess. 40%? 79 out of 575 public services were accomplished Ooh, during that time. Less than 20. Yeah. So it's really, really lagging behind. And um, also the EU has a digital decade target, which requires all members to bring 100% of all public services to be available online by 2030. So even by that measure, Germany is quite far behind and it's gonna, the, the gap is widening with other countries as well. So why is this though? Is, is, this, some, is this a workforce issue? You mentioned human capital. Is that it? What, what's the thing that's holding it back? Yeah, um, I think this is part of it, definitely. Um, so Bitcom last year, towards the end of last year, said Bitcom, by the way, is the Digital Industry Association in Germany. Um, they said that there is like an alarming and increasingly shortage of qualified people happening in Germany at the moment. And at the end of last year, as I said, 137,000 positions were looking to be filled, which is even higher than pre-pandemic levels, actually. Um, which was in 2017, 124,000. Um, of course, this number is also likely to have risen because of the pandemic, because during that time, Germany actually, surprisingly, has made quite the pu push towards digitalization, of course, because education, health, all these sectors were being pushed towards more digitalized versions, of course. So how is digital infrastructure being prioritized at a government level? Yeah, I mean, it really actually has been, if you look at the coalition agreement of the current centre-left uh, government um, of Olaf Scholz, they had this enshrined in their coalition agreement, actually, that the digitalization of Germany is going to be a main priority for them. Um, however, the plans were quite delayed, which only added to the many, many frustrations people felt at the time. And then finally, in the summer of last year, it was... Um, published um, but people were no less in the dark about it all there were no really precise goals um, expressed in it they didn't know what sort of tools were at their disposal and quite crucially there was no budget at the end of 2023 the negotiations just ended up rendering no budget for for it all um, and that also means for the whole year of 2023 there's no budget for this until next year when, when it's all coming up again um, which will only leave the government a year and a half until the autumn of 2025 to realize all their goals, which will be quite the feat if they actually accomplish that. There's been quite a bit of um, criticism at the level of ambition the government has anyway, hasn't there? Yes. Uh, among its goals is also to push Germany into the top 10 of that DESI report I mentioned earlier, which, you know, some might say is a bit of a 
lackluster ambition, really. It's not quite, you know, your Germany. Surely you can afford to dream a bit bigger than just increasing by three places here. I don't know. I appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm personally, I'm fed up of politicians telling me that everything in the world is going to be world beating. Well, missing the digital minister, I suppose he would be your favorite then because he sure is good at setting realistic <laughs> goals here. Um, yeah, he's also, um, so he, Volker Wissing is the minister for digital and transport. Um, so he's a responsible for both of those departments. Um, and just coming back to maybe the workforce issue from earlier as well, just to demonstrate the sort of difference and the sort of prioritization the government is assigning to this. Um, currently in the um, Department for Digital Politik, Digital Policies, there are 169 people working and there's exactly two hires planned for this year. In transport, they're close to 700. So there's quite a difference and in, in prioritization for the government here as well. So you can tell the sort of ambition or maybe the the efforts are just quite unmatched by what's actually being done. Um, so yeah, it leads to a lot of frustrations within the industry. And mm. yeah, I'm I'm sure the citizens, the population, would also greatly benefit from it. It's it, it's a good point to bring up because often you know I'll talk about Germany as you know really leading the EU in policy relating to certain renewables, particularly hydrogen. They're doing very well in yes, they do, captivating yeah. that market. But some of this kind of what you might call bread and butter stuff, the things that I suppose the German population would really be wanting, really exactly. asking their government to um, achieve, it, it, it's surprising that they're so far behind. Yeah. Um, and a lot of uh, industry leaders are also complaining that this is not only hurting Germany's competitiveness on the global stage, but also it is becoming a bit of a reputation and potentially even national security issue just for them to be lagging so far behind is it's just all adding up on top of each other and it's going to be such a difficult challenge for them to get themselves out of again there's been quite a lot of bad news in this episode already so let's try and bring it around (laughs) now what's what's the good news are there any you know positive signs on the horizon for digital infra in germany Yes, it's not all doom and gloom, luckily. I mean, it is Germany after all, I suppose. Um, so efforts in the private sector have actually been telling quite a different story to this. Um, so they're also helping them prevent Germany to stagnate completely, I suppose, in digital race. Um, coincidentally, those investments are also also predominantly um, in the area Germany is performing somewhat well in, actually, which was the um, ranking I talked about earlier, the connectivity part where they rank fourth, which is way above average, obviously. Um, So Germany is actually reported to have reached 96% coverage of fast broadband, Um, though I should say there is quite a significant divide that remains between urban and rural still. So that's still a bit of a difficulty they have to overcome. However, in terms of access to fiber to the premises, FTTP connection, it is quite low. Only 15.4% of all households have that sort of access, which um, places it along the member states with the second lowest fiber coverage. But again, before it gets really too depressing here, some of the investments that have been going on, especially towards the end of last year, Deutsche Telekom have, has actually announced that announced its plans to significantly strengthen its fiber rollout um, with the addition of 2.5 to 3 million connections in 2023. Um, and it is aiming to exceed 10 million connections by 2024. 
also end of last year, UBS Asset Management added a German fiber optic network operator to its digital infrastructure portfolio, and they're planning to expand their fiber network by 50,000 homes. So yeah, there are some positive developments for sure, but I think generally the German government just needs to demonstrate it actually means business and maybe put some budget, put some investment behind this. Maybe the creation of a dedicated digital ministry would help or even just restructuring and attracting qualified workforce would would support them in their efforts. Dila, thank you very much. Thank you. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. This week on Inspiratio's website, you can see our final instalment of our 2022 league tables. The full set of financial advisor, lender and legal advisor rankings are now available across the renewable and infrastructure sectors. We'll be diving into these results more deeply on a future episode. But that's all from us. I'd like to say one final thank you to my guests, Zach. Thank you, Oliver. And Dina. Thank you, Oliver. See you guys next time. We'll be back next week. Until then, goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.